0: Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL, Most Valuable Listener, on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. This is a special edition episode thanks to South by Southwest so exciting. This programming was to happen in Austin, Texas, but we get to make it happen for you remotely. Thanks to Squadcast. Thank you, Squadcast, for making it possible. And here's the episode.
1: I had no idea that any of this was this innovative until I started doing the work. And the way I figured it out that, whoa, this is a big deal, is NASA called.
0: My name is Devora host of the Women in Tech show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create the Women in Tech show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. Hi, Women in Tech. My name is Maliha Lakhani. I currently work as a user interface designer for a nonprofit organization called the UCLA Center for Ethno Communications. The Women in Tech community and podcasts acts as tools for knowledge protection for so many women working in tech. Listening to the podcasts make you realize that you aren't alone
2: and that there are other women just like yourself. Together, we can build a community and this podcast can help us learn from each other. You can contact
0: me on LinkedIn. My name is Malija, M-A-L-I-H-A, Lakhani, L-A-K-H-A-N-I, I'm looking forward to
2: connecting and listening to as many stories as possible because together we are stronger.
0: If you two want to connect and collaborate with more incredible women in tech, remember you can go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com we would not be able to support and celebrate women in tech around the world if it weren't for you. Thank you so much for being a listener and a fan of the show. To contribute and donate, simply go to womenintech.fm on the upper right hand side and click donate, which empowers us to continue celebrating women in tech around the world. Thank you for being a part of our journey.
3: Command Line Heroes is an original, highly produced, award-winning podcast about the people who transform technology from the command line up, presented by Red Hat. And this is not a technical show. This is a show anyone can enjoy, featuring experts from across the industry. Season four is airing now, so subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and stick around to the end of the show to hear a sneak preview of the brand new season.
0: So one of my quirky hobbies is uh, aggregating tech tools, apps, websites that help with productivity. And I would love, 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 love if you would reach out to me on social at Esprit Devora on any social and let me know your favorite tech tool to be productive. I will say I love fancy hands. That is just amazing. Um, What else? I'm going to go to my phone right now to share with you what my favorites are. Oh, reading list is a great tracker for reading my books and seeing that I'm moving ahead, moving forward. Other great uh, workflow workflowy amazing for bullet points, like just amazing to keep myself organized. I use it as my go-to on a daily basis to kind of just aggregate my thoughts and make sure that nothing's getting missed off the list. What are some of your favorite ones? It would be such a joy, no joke, to discover more productivity tools. All right. Enjoy the next episode. Bye. to the Women in Tech Podcast, celebrating women in tech around the world. And I am so excited for this very special, special episode featuring Dahl, an entrepreneur that I have been elated to celebrate. We were supposed to be doing this in Austin, Texas at South by Southwest. But as the world knows, we are going through a bit of an unusual situation. So Dahl and I are both at home. Doing this remotely, thanks to Squadcast. Thank you so much for making it possible to have remote, high-quality audio. Doll, I am so so elated that this is happening. Thank Woo! you so much for being a part of the Women in Tech podcast. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I'm super pumped, super pumped.
0: Dahl, why don't we kick things off? Your story is such a powerful one. Go ahead and share with everybody who you are and a little bit about what you do.
1: Yes. So I'm Dahl Levant. I am the founder and CEO of Aqua Genuity and the founder of Smart Citizens United, which we'll talk about in a minute. Aqua Genuity is a data company. We use data to help you understand what's in your water in real time. And this journey actually started for me when Flint happened. Everybody remembers when Flint, Michigan hit national headlines in 2016. And most folks were kind of mad and upset, and marching in the street, mad at the governor. They saw it as a political issue, but I am a Harvard grad, a data scientist. And so I saw it as a data problem. The people that needed the information about what was in their water just didn't have it. And so that event actually sent me on a journey that's really changed my life and, and led to the company and the platform that we have now.
0: And so we're going to get into the journey about your story. Your story is absolutely inspiring. People talk all the time about utilizing technology to innovate and to save the world, but they're usually just using trend words. You're literally doing something that shifts our entire world for the better. It's incredible. You've been featured in Wired Magazine and just it's it's incredible. Did you know about technology before you were driven to build an app that would serve so many of us?
1: Well, I was a serial entrepreneur. And, you know, I was familiar with the tech world. But this was my first tech startup. So yeah, I really was driven by trying to solve the problem. And obviously, technology was the best way in the platform to do that. And so I learned a lot. I learned on the job, if you will. And
0: when did you start your interest in entrepreneurship? Oh, my gosh. So when I was
1: little, I didn't know the word entrepreneur. I just knew that I was going to be influencing a lot of people. And I knew that I would be kind of creating wealth. So it's really funny when I was six years old, like people say, well, what do you want to be? And I would say, oh, I'm going to be um, like, I think I said cheerleader. But also like I would own a bank. Like that was my six year old version of an entrepreneur, which is really what I do today It's going around speaking and kind of sharing the vision and the message of the company, but also we're creating and controlling, you know, wealth and moving, you know, those resources and helping underserved communities. I didn't know how to say that when I was six.
0: And then where did the journey start for you? Like once you discovered about being an entrepreneur, where did you go from there?
1: So I graduated from Harvard and... I spent a couple of years in corporate America, corporate what finance. What did you study at Harvard? I studied Afro-American history with Henry Louis Gates and Cornell West. They were my advisors. And economics was my focus, you know, concentration. We don't have majors and minors. But yeah, it's kind of an interdisciplinary degree. Most folks in my program went on to business school. And so I kind of knew I would be in that realm. And then I did corporate finance for a couple of years, like Series 7, Series 66, you know, wealth management, all of that. And I did really well, but I really quickly learned that corporate America was not my deal just because I was always like creating things. It's like, here's here's what you're supposed to be doing. And I'm like, hey, here's an, an innovative way to approach this. And they're like, yeah, but we've been doing it this way for 35 years. And what are you talking about? You just got here, right? And so I quickly realized that I had some creative kind of inclinations that were more in tune with being an entrepreneur. So I stepped out, I started my first company was actually a magazine. It was just really an idea that I had. I saw kind of a gap in what I wanted to read in women's magazines at the time. So I was like, why isn't there a magazine for this? So I just figured it out. Every time I started a new business, I collide into a mentor, somebody who's been in that space for, you know, 30 years or whatever. And so I ended up meeting a VP at Time Warner and we shared the same birthday. That was something we had in common. And um, I told him what I want to do. And he's like, this is amazing. You're going to be the next Oprah. This is awesome. You know, so he kind of validated the idea and gave me the motivation to keep going. And so we ended up getting a distribution deal, which I learned later. It's not supposed to happen that early. Like you're supposed to already have a bunch of subscribers and then they put you on, you know, on the, the newsstand, if you will. Uh, but we we did pretty well. So that was kind of my first foray. What was the name of the magazine? It was called Sparks Magazine. So it was a magazine for women. Again, this was right when things were changing. Uh, maybe about eight years ago or 10 now. So it was difficult to find a magazine that had anything in it to do with what you wanted to do with your life, as opposed to just like helping you pick out lipstick colors. And I'm just like, why doesn't this exist? And so we, we tried to fill that gap.
0: And the way it sounds is it sounds like your journey has been really fluid, but it actually hasn't been as fluid or maybe there's been bumpy roads along the way. But growing up, did you have the kind of state of mind where you did naturally on default think anything was possible? And is that how you ended up in a prestigious school in a very
1: elite profession or was it was it a ch- like was it fluid or a challenge I think it comes from a couple of things my mentors and my parents so my dad for example he was a PhD statistician for NASA in the Neil Armstrong days but he was also like a masterful musician So he recorded uh, with Stax Records. He and my mom, they sing. They met in college at FAMU because of music, actually. She's also a PhD, five-hour credit hour short of her PhD, but also just an amazing singer. And so I grew up not knowing that it was weird to be really great at more than one thing, because that's just how my parents are. They kind of were just always, hey, we could make an album and we can do this. And so I kind of grew up in that space. And then later, um, when I was in high school, for example, you know, I was singing, I would say music was my first language, like I learned to sing before I learned to kind of speak in full sentences. So I grew up kind of singing, performing triple threat, is what they call it, singing, dancing, acting, right. But also, I was a scholar, I didn't know that that was weird, right. And um, we actually had a record deal offered to us, I was in a little girl group, you know, in high school and all that. And so We were like, well, what do we do? Should we take the deal? Should we go to college? I don't know what to do. And so Jane Fonda was my mentor at the time. This is her Ted Turner days. So the Turner Foundation funded our performing arts program at my high school, Frederick Douglass High School in Atlanta. And so she literally like picked me out and like I would go to her office in CNN Tower and just sit down and like hang out. And she's like, so what do you want to do? And I was like, well, you know, I don't know because it, we got this record deal. And they tried to sign me as a model and for in New York. And I don't know what to do. I, I got out some scholarships and da, da, da. And so this is a two time Oscar winner. Right. And so she has all of her movie posters on her wall behind her and she she stops and she's very silent. She's like, who told you that you had to choose? Like you can do two things. It's OK. Like you're you're multi-talented, multi-passionate. It's fine. Just figure it out and have systems in place to support what you're trying to do. And so I think those types of experiences, like I had no idea that that was world class advice. But yeah, so I really didn't know that you're not supposed to do that. Until uh, looking back, it's like, whoa, that what? Okay. So yeah, I grew up that way.
0: I've asked a lot of guests this question about do they think we create luck or luck just happens to us. And the more I ask, and like even talking to you now and how you were saying when you were younger, your influences had these positive messages. And I was even looking at a Yale study today saying that happiness is created by the words that we allow into our thoughts. And I think that maybe luck has something to do maybe the word luck is we misperceive it. It's more what is the messaging that we're giving ourselves throughout their whole life, and then we're going to create more of whatever that messaging is, yes. and then as a consequence, it's going to look like luck. I like this phrase I read in James Clear' book, Atomic Habits, that we architect our our our, our reality, like we architect our atmosphere. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, oh oh okay like that, if I yeah. want to drink water I just have to put water bottles everywhere you know? mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and so to me it sounds like you've architected luck and you had the blessing of having very encouraging mentors and parents around you to give you the positive messaging and then you rolled with it you're like I'll take it and let me build more of that and it's yeah. really exciting and it's something that I hope like anybody listening that can influence maybe younger girls younger girls younger guys anybody that it, we understand the power of words.
1: Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. It's a mindset. I think it's just kind of a, a frequency, if you will, that you operate. Yeah, it's like you know, this is what I believe about the world, and then the world kind of starts to reflect that. I, right. I believe that.
0: It's so cool. Okay, so let's continue your journey because we even, haven't even gotten into the heart of it yet. So your mentor at the time, Jane Fonda, says do it all essentially. And then where do you go from there?
1: So I ended up going to Harvard, which is also not necessarily like a lifelong plan, but I applied to a lot of different colleges. Like I said, I sang and all that in high school, I actually classically trained vocalists, right? So I was singing arias and in French and German and whatever. And I actually had as many music scholarships as I had academic. So I applied to all these schools. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I got into most of the schools and got scholarships. So nothing was helping me make decisions. So I said that my parents used to live in California. So all the stories when I was a child, all the glory days of living in Cali. So I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm going to college in Cali. It's what I'm doing. I got into USC. It actually says in my high school yearbook that I'm going to attend USC. I got in, I got a scholarship. I went there, I visited. I was like, this is amazing. This is what I was talking about. I'm going here. That's it. So then the next weekend, Harvard and Stanford had their pre-frosh on the same weekend. And I'm like, well, I just left California. So let me go visit Harvard and discover that there's this whole arts community and like people that I would actually hang out with that were students there. And so that's how I ended up deciding to go to Harvard. So, yeah, I went there and studied.
0: And how did you pick your major there? Did you have an interest in that before? What was the journey in selecting what you would study?
1: Yeah. So I didn't know what my concentration was going to be because, again, I didn't have this phrase of entrepreneur in my head. Um, I thought I would probably go to business school or whatever the case may be. And I was actually going to double major in Spanish and French or something, you know, kind of made up thing that I was going to do. And I went to a lecture, Cornell West, it was like the first week of class or whatever. And he's such a character, you know, he's in the Matrix, like what kind of professor has like made <laughs> a hip hop album and is also in the Matrix. And he gets up the first lecture and, you know, he's like, modernity and his just his delivery it's really american history right so we think of afro-american history but it's literally the story of america and like how and why and race is a, a social construct and like it helps you to think about things outside the box which i guess kind of goes in line with, the, with my mindset it's um it was really fascinating just kind of the scholarship that they brought to that and so that i picked that major based on uh his personality and henry Louis gates you know who He was the one who first started the craze and he did Oprah's DNA test back in the day. And he has the PBS specials and everything. And um, yeah, so they were my advisors and it was really awesome.
0: And then how long was the gap going from being in school to creating aquagenuity?
1: So I did undergrad. I graduated from undergrad in '99. And then I went to corporate finance for a couple of years. I started my first company. So entrepreneurship started in 2007. And then about... And that was
0: with the magazine, with Spark Magazine. Yeah. Okay. yeah.
1: And then about eight and a half years later is when Aqua Genuity happened.
0: How did you end up getting involved in that industry?
1: I met Percy Jones is his name. He's actually won an award from the Congressional Black Caucus. He's an inventor. It's amazing. And we spoke on a panel together. And we just kind of really connected in, in terms of what he was working on, what he was interested in and what he needed in his business is what I was great at, which is kind of marketing and strategy and all of that. And so we started working together on a couple of different things, including a water filter that he'd invented. And that's kind of what took me on that path. And what inspired Aqua Genuity? So, yeah, so 2016 in the contaminated water crisis in Flint, Michigan hit national and global headlines Like I said, it really struck me differently because I also did a MicroMasters somewhere in there between the time I started my first company. I did a MicroMasters in data analytics as well. So I'm looking at this and I'm like, this is a data problem. These people don't know the information about what's in their water. Humans are basically the sensors that are alerting us that there's a water quality problem in Flint, Michigan. And that's crazy. Like, why isn't there an app for this? And so it's funny because Percy Jones, his son... I was working with who's also brilliant and and has an MBA and he worked for Adidas and all these other companies. So I was working with him to help his dad's company. So throughout the couple of years, we got pretty, pretty close. So when I had this thought, like, why isn't there an app for this? Like I'm, I'm infuriated, right? That these American citizens don't know what's going on with their water. The first person in the world that I texted about it was Chris, which is Mr. Jones's son. And I'm like, why isn't there an app for this? And he's like, that's actually a great idea. And that's what started my journey with Aquagenuity.
0: And after you texted Chris, what were
1: your very first steps to making it become a real thing? I had to find the data and I quickly, quickly realized why no one had done it. Like, why isn't there an app that just tells you what's in your water? And the reason is because it's it's nearly impossible. Like, it's really hard to do, right? So there's 57,000 individual water systems in the United States. The data is unstructured, it's siloed, it's in all different formats, it's all over the place. Um, In some instances, you have to be, you know, a designated organization and it's it's publicly available data, but you have to be approved to access said data. And then in some cases, you actually have to like file a Freedom of Information Act. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? It's water. I turn on my tap. It's everyone has water. Why can't I know it's in my water without, you know, having to have a, a PhD in environmental engineering? So it was very difficult. So I actually spent about a year trying to understand where this data lives, how to aggregate it all into one place, right? And also I went back to Harvard School of Public Health and just was doing a lot of research around the types of things that are being found in the water in the United States and how it was impacting public health. And that's when I discovered this really horrible statistic that sent me way down the rabbit hole, right? And I shared this one in in my TED Talk that there are actually 3,000 locations in the United States with more lead in their water than Flint, Michigan. And it's just like, wait, what? Yeah, exactly. Flint, Michigan was horrible. Like, it was an international scandal. Like, what do you mean? Totally. Totally. And so it really drove home for me the point that this is a problem and it's not a third world problem. Like right here in the United States, people have no idea what's in their water. And the way we find out is like 30 years later, a bunch of people get sick and then somebody does a study and then they come back 10 more years later and they say, oh, yeah, it was the water after all these people have gotten cancer or worse. Like, it's not okay. Like, this is not okay, You know, so then I started finding statistic after statistic, right? Like the Aaron Brockovich chemical. Famous for the, in the movie, causes cancer in a California town. And also it's in all 50 states and it's not regulated by the EPA, like, or our infrastructure in this country, you know, it's like a hundred years old and it's received a D rating from the American Society of Civil Engineers. And if we were to try to fix it, it would be like a trillion dollars, which means it's not going to happen, right? So it's like, what, you know? And so I really had to try to figure out why is this like this. Like someone knows this information. Average consumers don't know what's up with this gap. And so that's when the work started to become really personal for me. And even more than an app, I realized I was going to have to kind of lead a movement around this.
0: And then what did that look like? How do you even start? How do you start a movement?
1: So one of the things that that I had to do and I did pretty early on was make a decision, you know, okay, I'm a data scientist. I'm just reporting data, right? I'm not making a, a statement of judgment. I'm saying, according to the data, they're actually closer to 4,000 locations with statistic you can just look at the numbers, more lead in their water. Like it's a data, it's a statement, right? right? Where people right. want to politicize it. And so my stance had to be, okay, water is not a political issue. It's a human issue. You know, humans have a fundamental right to know what's in the food we eat, the air we breathe, the water we drink. That's all. But we're not asking for a lot here. This is just basic, you know. Um, And so that was kind of the stance. And so building the, the brand even around that, like we're not an environmental group. We're not activists. We're not whistleblowers. We're a data company. We're telling you the data about what's in the water, right? And according to the EPA, for example your lead should be at 15 parts per billion and where you live it's at 35 right this is here's this information right so yeah. with that data you become empowered as a citizen to do something to protect your own health and then you know perhaps other things or policy would come out of that but we're just reporting the data it's very much like a like a fico score right here's the information about your your financial history i'm not making a judgement about
0: it that's so interesting so you stop at the data part so it doesn't get sticky because you're like I'm, I'm just finding out the information for you and putting it out in a way that you can access it and be informed and now you can go make the decisions you would like to make and then the people who created it or the organizations or people or infrastructure that created this problem in the first place they can make the decisions they would like to make it's just
1: everybody's informed now exactly <laughs> right and so I learned really quickly to make sure that I was positioning things in a way where we're not placing blame so that's how I began to describe the problem as a last model. Mile problem, right? So, what I say is, let's assume that every city in the world has absolutely perfect water. It's it's great water. It's great, right? Right. You know, and it still has to go the last mile from the water treatment plant to your home's tap. And in that last mile, that's where Flint happens, right? That's where Newark happens. That's where all this infrastructure and crumbling. The water quality changes about as often as the weather does, actually. So anytime there's heavy rains or flooding or dumping or construction or anything that shakes those pipes that lead to your home, it's going to change the quality of the water that's coming out of your tap. And so our position is we need that data. We don't have it. So we created a whole platform to help people get that data at the point of use at the tap. And that takes the onus off of, you know, pointing fingers at the local city water company.
0: Is there a cost for the app for people to access and find out? Like, can we get on the app right now and find out the quality of our water in in our home or how does it work?
1: Absolutely, you can. So If you go to myaquascore.com, you can actually put in your zip code and, and get the information right away. And, and that's free for everyone. and It'll always be free and then we we do upgrades where if you want that down to your tap and you want it on a monthly subscription you can get the starter kits or the the water dna that's like 23 and me for water you can get the kit mailed to your house you open it up fill it up with water send it back you get a full certified lab profile of your water and a personalized water score so you always have peace of mind it's really just about peace of mind right so remember like back in the 40s and 50s or whatever we left our doors open right like you just walk around and it's, it was fine. You trust your neighbors or whatever. Now everybody has like ADT, you're simply safe. It's what you do. You Not because you think someone's going to be breaking in your house every day. It's because you monitor that. It's, it's what you do. And so that goes back to kind of the way this has become kind of a movement. Um, because in the 20th century, we just assumed our water is fine. Like everything's fine. It's all good. That's what the EPA is for. Like it's fine. Uh, And the way we found out that things were not fine is a scandal or a crisis or something crazy would happen. But in the 21st century, transparency is a new currency, right? We want to know what's in everything. We want to know what's in this dye and the shirt, and is it going to give me an allergic reaction? Like, I want information. And so let's give the people what they want. That's why our hashtag is data to the people. Put that data in the hands of the people and let them make better decisions. And so That actually opened up a lot of different revenue models for us as well, because now companies are starting to realize that if they give that data to people like a Zillow or Weather Channel or, you know, some type of consumer facing platform, then consumers are going to like their brand more because they're giving them the data that they want So we're able to do that as well.
0: And have you? I'm sure you have explored becoming a filter company. I mean, can filters help our
1: tap water? Absolutely. You know, in lieu of fixing all of the infrastructure, right? You you have to do something. Usually, filtering is one of those solutions. So filter might be great, but it might not be good for where you live. So it's mm, just because you have different things in your water. Yes. Yeah. yeah, And so, yeah, but it's still we try to stay above the fray and just say, hey, you just want to make sure that the filter you have is certified to remove the things that we know are in your water. So that that geospecific data about what's in the water is the big innovation. Right. So aggregating that data was really hard. We did that. But I wanted to make it simple. Like, again, if I don't have a degree in chemistry or environmental engineering, what does any of this mean? And so I actually wrote an algorithm that turns all of that into a number. 100 is good, 0 is bad. It's the aqua score. And, you know, we can do heat maps. So blue is good, and red is bad. And that's what you can find if you go on my aqua score. You'll get all that information and everything that's in that water. What does this mean for my health? You know, what kind of filter do I need? Just basic things to better protect your own health, you know and your family's health. But I had no idea, Esprit, that any of this was this innovative until (laughs) I I started doing the work. And the way I figured it out that, whoa, this is a big deal is NASA called, well, specifically Singularity University at NASA Research Park. So founded by Peter Diamandis, who's the founder of SpaceX and Ray Kurzweil, the director of engineering for Google. They named me a global impact fellow at NASA Research Park in Silicon Valley, uh, Singularity so cool. for for inventing this, even imagining to create this thing, right? And then Google called. Uh, they ended up putting me on the homepage of Google, which is like, what? That's not a thing. Like, what do you mean? And and <laughs> and and have the international designation of Google's woman of water. You know that I can always wow. say that now, right? Like, what do That's you mean? Awesome. Yeah, and all for being the first in the world to make it really, really simple for any average person to answer the question, what's in your water, right? So ended up doing something that will shift the planet, right? The United Nations now has called, so we were selected by Ocean Visions, which is a collaborative between United Nations, uh, the Smithsonian, Stanford, MIT, Georgia Aquarium, and some other amazing institutions, And selected as one of the seven technologies saving the world's waterways. But I had no idea. I was really just like literally just angry that people were being poisoned and they were American citizens. I had no idea that this would come out of this.
0: There's so many people that come up to me that want to make a change. They want to create the impact that you're creating. But, you know, the big mystery picture, if you don't mind me asking, is like, how do you fund this? Do you fund it with your customers? Do you fund it with sponsors? Do you have grants? Like, how can someone follow in your footsteps and create as well, but they don't have the resource in this exact moment? Like, where do they go next to make sure they can sustain creating?
2: In the world of modern technology, we open our laptops, scroll endlessly on our smartphones, send tons of data to the cloud, and we don't think twice about it. But have you ever wondered how we got to now with our personal devices? What it took were teams of engineers and programmers who had the vision and audacity to build new machines. I'm Saranya Barik. Join me for an incredible new season of the podcast, and keep on coding.
3: Season four is airing now. Subscribe to Command Line Heroes today, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: How do you fund this? Do you fund it with your customers? Do you fund it with sponsors? Do you have grants? Like, how can someone follow in your footsteps and create as well but they don't have the resource in this exact moment like where do they go next to make sure they can sustain creating
1: yeah so I, I have a two-pronged answer to that one all of this work became really personal for me and you mentioned that when I was in the middle of all the research just figuring out how to find the data and everything and my dad got sick and we couldn't really figure out what was wrong with them we kept taking them to different doctors whatever he was seventy-two years old. He'd been a professor and, and other things. He had retired, moved to a new house, small town, and they finally said, "Oh well, he has diabetes." And so when you hear that, you think, "Oh well, people get old; they don't take care of themselves." Da da da. But I was like, "Well, wait a minute! It, it, you know, he's been eating the same whatever he wants to eat for seventy-two years. He didn't change his diet or his lifestyle or anything, but his zip code had changed. Right? He moved." And so I'm in the middle of all this research and I come across this report linking arsenic and local water no. supplies to, to diabetes and cancer and this net. I'm like, wait, what? Your water can do what? So I'm starting, now I'm going to investigate, like I'm digging deeper. And but you're then, like
0: already in this industry. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, well, what are you talking about? And I'm seeing all these other, you know, connections to water and like heart disease. And I'm what are you talking about? Aluminum in water has been linked to Alzheimer's, right? And we just think people get these things. But then my dad's health took a turn for the worse. Like he really had some other complications. He actually passed away in June of 2017. And I couldn't stop thinking like how many people are being exposed to things in their water. And we have no idea. Like it's it's your water. Like you would never make the connection. And so literally two weeks after his funeral is when I started this company. So it became very personal for me. So that, to answer your question, that pushed me past a lot of moments when it was difficult. I didn't have the funding, you know, I, like I said, I'm a serial entrepreneur, so I'd already kind of, I'm not on salary, you know, I was already living off a savings kind of thing. And, you know, what makes you push forward when somebody says, oh, this is huge, but it's too big. Like, you can't do that because it hasn't been done before. You know, what makes you push past all those obstacles? It has mm-hmm. to be something personal that's driving you to do it. So that's the first answer to the question. There's three answers. Just, and There's,
0: I'm sorry. And I'm, of course, yeah, sorry for your you. loss. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, it, it really has um kind of driven in and, and it. I feel like. Like I said, the first person for to call about this on a national or global scale was NASA. And my dad used to work for NASA. So I almost felt like it was, you know, Full him circle. saying, yeah, yeah, keep going.
0: I just want to take a moment. That's really yeah. beautiful.
1: Yeah, it's cool. Um, it, 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 I started to get little moments of confirmation like, hey, you're on the right path. Like, trust me, this is going to work. Just keep going. It's
0: almost like your dad is your business partner now, yeah. like your spiritual guide. It's
1: so cool. It's so cool. Yeah, I feel like, you know, it's a legacy that I don't know if I would have been paying attention, like I said, if it wasn't for my dad and just being in that right spot, right time kind of thing. Um, But also when when trying to fund a vision or a dream, you know, like if I did it all over and I wasn't an entrepreneur and I had a job and I had this idea, I would have you stayed on my job as long as possible. Like a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to do this thing and then they just quit their job. And it's like, well, maybe no, not so much, right? Because there's actually like five levels of kind of financial security, if you will. And level one is like not enough. Like you literally don't know how your bill is going to get paid. It's a miracle every month, but somehow it works out, right? And some people start there, especially when you're younger or whatever. And then level two is like sufficiency. Like, okay, I have just enough money to pay my bills and great. Then when you get to level three, you have a little bit of abundance or extra or whatever, like after all the bills are paid. And that's when you need wisdom, right? And a strategy, because typically people either kind of take the extra and they blow it or they, they increase the bills. to So basically you drop back down to sufficiency, right? Because now it's like, well, let me just get the bigger cable package or the whatever, right? So when you're in a, a job or, or you have a, a spouse or a partner or somebody that's helping you in your household, maybe maybe you can save a little bit and get a little runway before you quit your job to start your dream, you know, that kind of thing. So just being able to, um, I guess, save and set aside and, and try to, Create as much of a support system for yourself as possible before you step out and, and just jump off the boat because it's really, really hard. Like Being an entrepreneur is like one of the hardest things I've ever done. So it's always good to either have a cushion or have a family member or mom or somebody who has committed to helping you in those early stages until you've built enough of, uh, I guess, momentum and been able to prove the idea they also they call me the pitch queen so in terms of being able to start getting other people to fund your your vision right you have to be able to communicate the idea in a way that people they get it they they connect and resonate emotionally and that they actually want to take action right like as opposed to you trying to sell somebody something so being able to pitch your idea in a way that that communicates the value I actually did that pretty successfully even before we had built the product right because again it was hard to pull all the data and I went through like two different iterations of my team and it was difficult to, to get to the point where we had like uh, MVP and all that other stuff. But yet we had a lot of traction because of the pitch. So I would say master the art of the pitch if you want to raise money.
0: With that, one thing I want to make note of is that you said it's very hard being an entrepreneur, However, people see you and they see or right now listening to this podcast, they hear you and they they hear me and they just assume like we're confident 24-7. And so when you say it's hard being an entrepreneur, can you share like the vulnerability, like one thing that's really hard that you overcome on a regular basis?
1: Yeah. And thankfully, I don't have to deal with this anymore. But one of the things I struggled with a lot was I actually had somebody very close to me who could not comprehend like, okay, you have a Harvard degree and you're doing what, it was kind of like, why don't you go get a job and like sit down somewhere, you know? And they, they weren't trying to be negative, but, but it would always come back to that. Like always, always like, like almost like, why are you wasting your life? Like, you know, on this journey, like you wait, you know, your talents or whatever, like just go be normal. And I think that messaging comes in a lot of different ways. It could be because, you know, you haven't found funding yet or you're, you're not on salary yet or, you know, you're not able to do things that your friends, your age are doing because of whatever, you know, because you've made different choices totally. you've sacrificed, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just hard. Like, you feel like, am I crazy? Like, what am I doing? Like, is this going to work? Like, how long is this going to take? And, you know, and so then that, if you don't deal with that, it leads to, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs making really bad decisions, like taking deals, like someone offers them money, but it's a horrible deal, but they take it just because, oh my God, I have to, you know, they just want to kind of cross that finish line of feeling like there's some type of fruit from the work that you're doing. Um, and so that to me is, is the hard part because even even when I first, I guess, started as an entrepreneur, it wasn't even the buzzword that it is now, right? Um, but it's just a different journey. I mean, it's just not a secure, like even just your time schedule day to day, right? It's not like, you know, you were in school from K through 12. They told you where to go every hour you go to this class, this class in college, you had classes, you had to go as an entrepreneur. Nobody's telling you, Hey, do this today. So you have to kind of create some structure yourself right um i always say personal development and business development are like the same thing so as much as you have or have not developed as an individual in terms of just basic disciplines that's how far your business is gonna go so it's really this crucible you know where you're forced to level up and that to me is what makes it really hard but also really rewarding
0: I love it. I love it. I think it's so important to show everybody the transparency in the journey. And um, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. And of course, we're going to include the scorecard. Can you give the URL one more time?
1: Yes, it's myaquascore.com.
0: Yeah, and we'll include the link in the show notes as well. Where can people find you online?
1: So all of my personal social is just dollavant, one word, D-O-L-L-A-V-A-N-T. And you can follow Aquagenuity at Aquagenuity on all social media.
0: Can you spell it out for everybody? A-Q-U-A-G-E-N-U-I-T-Y. And just a couple last questions. Mm-hmm. What is the best piece of advice you've ever gotten?
1: I think definitely in addition to my mom, uh, Jane Fonda was, was really influential in telling me. It was really about not limiting myself uh, mentally. Don't let someone else tell you what you can be or you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's determined by you and what you feel it, your heart is telling you is your purpose. And when you follow your purpose, that thing that won't leave you alone at night, you can't let it go. You try to let it go. It keeps coming back. And when you follow that, an amazing life is on the other side of just executing that. I think that's the message that I I've, totally.
0: I've I've been rereading The Desire Map. Do you know that book by chance? Hmm.
1: Yeah, I need to reread and it.
0: I'm going through kind of like wanting to clear the fog a bit. So I'm like, I'm going to revisit my core. I'm going to revisit my why, revisit mm-hmm. what's important to me. And and it was interesting. I, I think what I'm taking away from it again is – Success is living in the feeling that we want to be experiencing more often than not. Mm -hmm. And I've been asking myself, am I making choices that are fear-based or that are in alignment with the energy that I want to be experiencing? And so I'm reprocessing that. But it sounded like in in the advice that you got, it's the same thing. It's like really be true to our core and like the life that we actually want to be living, not the life that we think we should be living.
1: Exactly right. And be brave, you know? It takes bravery to do it.
0: It's super brave. It's so hard for all of us. Being a human is hard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And I feel like the answer is going to be yes, but I'd like to ask, so I'm not going to not ask you as well. Have you been on a podcast before? Yes. Okay, perfect. I think you may find this interesting. Almost all of our guests have not... Which really excites me. Now, that being said, I go to places like Bosnia and, uh, you know, Kazakhstan. Yeah. But I think it is so exciting to champion women who haven't otherwise had the opportunity. Then the last question I like to ask, and this is just a personal, like selfish, excitable nerd thing, is what is your favorite tech tool? Like your favorite
1: mobile app, software, website? (laughs) <laughs> ah, there's, there's a other lot of other than your good own, ones, of course. Right? No, I actually just learned about Squadcast like right before we set up this virtual deal, and I'm so excited about it. A friend of mine knows the founders, and he's like, No, you because I'm starting our podcast, Smart Citizens United, actually, this month during. The quarantine its the quarantine content <laughs> renaissance here because so many of us, you know, our core heartbeat message for Aquagenuity and everything we do is we have a right to the data. We have a right to know how our environment is impacting us. We should know this should not be something that's impeded by bureaucracy, right? So it's up to all smart citizens to jump in and become a part of thought leadership and part of the solutions and so forth. So I had to start a podcast. and But yeah, so he was like, you have to use Squadcast. And I'm like, what? But now I'm using it for the first time with you and it's amazing. So this is my new favorite tool.
0: I'll tell you the two top features that make me over the top about it. One, as we're talking right now, even if you or I mess up and I click on something wrong or I end it too soon, they do automated backups. So we don't have to worry about losing our interview. And then they make it so like your audio quality and my audio quality, no matter the internet connection, it, it doesn't matter our internet connection. The audio quality is going to sound amazing. Oh, so wow. those are my two core like, love it. yes.
1: Well, shout um, out to Squadcast.
0: Yes, yeah, shout out to Squadcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for making the time. You've just been incredible. If you want to connect and collaborate with more extraordinary women in tech around the world, remember to go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at Women in Tech VIP.com. That's Women in Tech VIP.com. Be sure to say hello on social at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I will see you guys, talk to you guys, hear you guys in the next episode. Bye. Bye.
1: I'm Dahl Levant. I'm the founder and CEO of Aquagenuity, where water meets ingenuity. And we use data to help you understand what's in your water in real time from any smart device. We're based in Atlanta, Georgia, and you're listening to Women in Tech.
3: I'd like to tell you about an all new season of Command Line Heroes, a podcast presented by Red Hat. No one ever said hardware was easy. In season four, Command Line Heroes is telling seven special stories about people and teams who dared to change the rules of hardware and in the process, changed how we all interact with technology.
2: In the world of modern technology, we open our laptops, scroll endlessly on our smartphones, send tons of data to the cloud, and we don't think twice about it. But have you ever wondered how we got to now with our personal devices and what it took to get here?
3: There was this blue box on a table. And he said, well, here it is. I said, well, what is it? He said, it's a microcomputer.
2: What it took were teams of engineers and programmers who had the vision and audacity to build new machines. These machines, they revolutionized our lives and blew the doors open to what was possible.
3: How many people here had a computer versus how many people intended to get one? Only one or two people actually had them. And they would bring them to the club meeting. What are you going to do with it? And nobody had an answer.
2: The key thing about timesharing was that the computer needed some way of being
1: able to sort of stop its own clock.
3: The uh, creators of the floppy drives are not household names by any means. If it wasn't for that, PCs would have
2: been adopted much more slowly. This January 28th, we launched season four of Command Line Heroes, an original podcast for Red Hat. And this season, it's all about the hardware. We'll hear the stories behind some iconic machines and the people who dared to create them.
1: I was the kid that always took things apart, took my older sister's toys
2: apart. This is just another bag on the side of the eclipse, a skin job.
3: Nope, this is a whole new machine. The process of passing the tapes around and encouraging and building upon each other's results is really what made the personal computer industry.
2: We're exploring mini computers, mainframes, the first personal computers, floppies, early smartphones, and game consoles. And we're also going to hear how the community ethos that drove those early hardware heroes to build those machines still exists today in the open source hardware movement. The values of sharing are still there. I mean, it's in the entire open source community.
3: The machine, in a way, was kind of a bit character. It was the people who were the real guts of what it was about.
2: I'm Saran Barak. Join me for an incredible new season of the podcast. And keep on coding. So thank you. And uh, eat your sandwiches.
3: Season four is airing now. Subscribe to Command Line Heroes today, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo.
3: Edited by Adam Carroll.
0: And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production.